Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And in our last episode, we turned our attention to the book of 1 Timothy, one of Paul's highly personal and timely letters to his young son in the faith, the evangelist Timothy. We mentioned then that the letter naturally breaks down into three main areas of thought. One of those areas of thought we examined in the last episode, and that involved clear and easily understood warnings against departures from the faith. The other two lines of thought in the letter involved how to behave ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, and how to save ourselves and those who hear us. In this episode, I want to focus upon the second line of thought, how we are to behave ourselves in the house of God. The primary or key verses concerning this matter are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul wrote there, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. A great deal of Paul's letter to Timothy is devoted to the exhortation to right conduct by Christians in the many and varied relationships of life. For instance, we could go over to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy and look at verses 1 through 6, which constitutes an exhortation to prayer. We'll begin by looking, first of all, at verses 1 and 2. Paul wrote, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Paul had just written about the need to maintain the purity of the doctrine of the church, and he had mentioned two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had failed to keep the doctrine pure having made shipwreck of their faith and had been withdrawn from for their good and for the good of the church. What he now writes follows that teaching. It is part of a sound doctrine and shows us one way that we are to behave in the household of God. He deals with prayer. First of all, indicating the importance of prayer for all men. He then sets forth four primary elements of prayer. This really can be regarded as a model for prayer. He writes, first of all, of entreaties or supplications, depending upon what translation you are using. That word is used in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 to denote the agony of Jesus and the fervor of his cry for help when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. There are times when our requests to God are made with a greater fervor and a deeper sense of urgency. We've all been there when it was a cry of, Father, please help me. A supplication or an entreaty 
is a more specific and urgent kind of prayer. Paul also mentioned prayers, which in this context would refer to a more normal kind of request in contrast to the urgency of the supplications. He also wrote of petitions, or depending upon your translation, intercessions. What a wonderful lesson this teaches us. The idea behind this word is pleading in the interest of others and doing this without holding back. Our prayers are not only to be about us, but we are to pray for all men. Some will be more urgent, some will be more general. But this aspect of prayer helps us to focus on others and to place the well-being of others before ourselves, which is the key to faithfully serving the Lord anyway. Then Paul mentioned thanksgivings. It is not enough simply to be grateful for God's grace, mercy, and all the blessings that he had so richly given to us, but we must not forget to express our thanks and gratitude to him. It is so easy to remember to ask for what we want or need. It is not so easy to remember to thank God when we get it, or just to thank him for hearing our entreaties and prayers and petitions. In addition to exhorting us to pray for all men, Paul specifically mentioned kings and all who are in authority. Remember that government was ordained by God for the good of man and for our protection. The goal of our prayer for these individuals is that we may be able to lead a tranquil and quiet life, meaning free from the threat of violence, persecution, or even molestation. That we might be free to show all reverence and honor to God and conduct ourselves with honesty and dignity toward all men. Look at verses 3 through 6 where Paul wrote, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Why should Christians constantly engage in prayer and that for all men? Because it is what God wants. He wants us to come to him. He is the God of all men. Thus pray for all men everywhere. If I may pause for a moment and take a little detour, allow me to say that verse 4 smacks the false system of Calvinism head on. Calvinism teaches that only certain individuals are predestined to be saved, and that certain individuals are predestined to be lost, and that there is nothing any of us can do about it. If you are predestined to be saved, you can be the worst scoundrel of all, and you will be saved. If, according to Calvinism, you are predestined to be lost, you can be the most righteous individual, and it won't matter. This verse shows that to be the insidious doctrine that it is, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He does not predestine anyone to be lost. What a blessing to be a Christian. We can go to the one God, and there is only one. Through the one mediator, and there is only one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our mediator, Jesus, is uniquely and wonderfully qualified like no other. On the one hand, he possesses the very nature and attributes of deity, and can therefore accurately 
adequately and completely understand, represent, and execute the will of the Father. On the other hand, by virtue of his coming here in the flesh and partaking of the nature of humanity, being tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, he can accurately, adequately, and completely understand, represent, and act in our behalf. No one else can occupy that position. Once again, if I may, let me take just a little sideline here. Verse 5 absolutely denies the Roman Catholic assertion that Mary is a mediatrix, a go-between between God and man. Jesus is the only mediator, and as verse 6 points out, he is uniquely qualified in that he gave himself in our stead. Thus, my friends, consistent prayer is a vital part of conducting ourselves properly within the household of God, the church of the living God. As we continue on in chapter 2, we see another aspect of the proper conduct within the household of God. There, Paul addresses the subject of how women ought to conduct themselves. Verses 9-15 through 15 tell us, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Faithful women are exhorted to appropriate conduct, manifested in how they appear, what they do. In the matter of clothing, it should be such that is orderly and appropriate for someone who is a Christian. The orderliness of which Paul writes refers not just to the various articles of clothing worn, but also to the relationship that clothing has to her Christian character and life. What a woman wears outwardly is and must be a reflection of what she is inwardly. A woman can say all the right things, but oftentimes her clothing will show what she really is inside. The exhortation is for women to recognize their place of subjection, going all the way back to the order of creation. Thus, the proper conduct of women is essential to behaving themselves properly in the household of God. Paul has a great deal more to say about proper behavior within the household of God. Let's take the time to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. There he wrote, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. 
and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of only one wife, and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. Here Paul addresses the matter of the organization of the church. The household of God is the church of the living God. It is made up of people. It is made up of those who have rendered their obedience to the gospel of Christ. The instructions that Paul has given to Timothy and to us by application have to do with our proper behavior individually and also as we carry on the work of the church. The church has the responsibility to uphold and support the truth. We have the responsibility to proclaim the truth, pure and unadulterated. That is our job. I remember being involved in a discussion one time with the pastor, and I use that term accommodatively, of a large denominational church in Louisville. And I asked him one time for book, chapter, and verse that gave his group the authority for their organization. And his response was, well, that's just church polity. Well, polity is a particular form or system of government. And part of conducting ourselves properly within the household of God, which is the church of the living God, is being organized according to his specified polity or system of government. God has decreed how his church is to be organized, and men are not free to step outside of that God-given organization. Each local congregation is to be overseen by a plurality of elders, pastors, with deacons as special servants of the church and the members. Understand that organization is part of behaving properly within the household of God. When people change it, they are wrong. And when people refuse to be overseen by elders or pastors, they also have transgressed God's way. Another of the individual responsibilities we have as we seek to behave ourselves properly in the household of God is pointed out in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul wrote, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In the household of God, the church of the living God, we have the responsibility to care for, to provide for the needs of our family, extended relatives, and most essentially, and especially, those who make up our immediate family. The Christian who refuses to do so has denied the faith and conducted themselves in a manner worse than that of an infidel. Paul is writing about an individual who chooses not to measure up to even the best heathen standards of family affection 
being more blameworthy because we have, have what the heathen does not have. We have the supreme example of love and provision in the life and death of our Lord Jesus. The Christian who refuses to work is not behaving properly within the household of God. There is so much more we could talk about concerning our proper conduct. In chapter 5, Paul also addresses the care of widows. And we might also add that in the context of that discussion, another false teaching is laid to rest. In the institutional question that divided and continues to divide the Lord's Church, the argument was frequently made that whatever the individual could do, the church could do. It is sometimes stated as whatever the individual does, the church is doing, because the individual is a member of the church. Well, look with me at chapter 5 and verse 16, which says, If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them, and let not the church be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. If it is true that whatever the individual does, the church does, or if it is true that whatever the individual is authorized to do, the church is authorized to do, then it would be impossible for that command to be obeyed. There is a clear difference between individual duties and what God has ordained for his church. A failure to understand this involves the church in things that God never intended for it to do, and consequently, it is a failure to behave ourselves properly within the household of God, the church of the living God. We need also to mention that in chapter 6, Paul warns against greater love for material things than for spiritual matters and speaks of what a danger it is. Again, that involves our conduct as Christians. The point is, it matters what we do. Conduct matters. God is concerned with all aspects of our conduct, and he wants us to behave ourselves properly as members of his household, the church of the living God. Thanks for listening.